Osiris. I say this to anybody listening to this podcast. There is no time frame. If you want to do it and you know what it is you want to do, take those steps to make it happen. And that doesn't mean that you have to become a rock star. It just means do the thing that gives you joy. And who's to say that now is not your time? Hi, this is Maggie Rose. You're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Welcome to Salute the Songbird. I'm your host, Maggie Rose, and today we're sitting down with a multi-talented artist. She's a musician, an actor, a songwriter, a performer, an activist, and an all-around pretty awesome person. I'm speaking of Rita Wilson, who's just released her fifth studio album, Now and Forever Duets, which was a very ambitious project where she covers rock and roll classics from the 70s with iconic male duet partners. And when I say iconic, I mean it. We're talking Keith Urban, Smokey Robinson, Willie Nelson, Jackson Brown, Leslie Odom Jr., Elvis Costello, Tim McGraw, Jimmy Allen, Vince Gill, and Josh Groban. This album is an ode to the songs that made her fall in love with music in the first place. It's a collection of classic, timeless songs that we all know and love, but she really wanted to pay tribute to the songwriter and the artist that made these songs famous first. So she does it with taste and restraint and a lot of chemistry between her and her duet partner. We discuss what it means to access one's own creativity, the importance of maintaining a strong sense of self, and why there's never a right time to do what you love. Listen to her. Do it. You will never believe that she woke up at 3.30 the morning we spoke and performed on Good Morning America with Smokey Robinson to perform their rendition of Where is the Love? Because her energy is just explosive and contagious, and you're about to see why. Let's dive in with Rita Wilson. And the songbirds keep singing like they know the score. And I love you, I love you, I love I got into songwriting through an amazing woman writer, Cara Diaguardi. I'm sure you know her. She's incredible, has a massive amount of hits, but she's also just an incredible woman, very smart. And she's always onto something very interesting and always in support of other people and talent. 
So that came about because she said, you know, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I would love to write songs like you, but you know, I, I can't. She says, why can't you? I said, well, I, I don't play an instrument. I don't, you know, <laughs> read music. And she says, neither do I. Do you have something you want to say? And when she said that, it really was like, oh, I had never thought of it that way before. And Nashville has been not just welcoming, but a force in my songwriting growth. Because when I came down there, Kara wrote my first songs with me. But then when I started coming down to Nashville, I was humbled by the craftsmanship and the sheer talent of everybody that is working in music down there. So it was very humbling and they were very kind with me, but also accepting because I wanted it. When I think about music, I think it was the thing that I wanted to do all my life. And how do you, how do you do that now when you're like, Oh, okay. I do these other things. I'm known for these other things. And how do you just say, I want to do this. And it might sound on the surface that, oh, of course, you just decided you want to write a song and Kara wrote songs. But the amount of terror that went along with all of that. Is so much vulnerability. Talk about. <laughs> you know, it's terrifying. It's one of the most intimate acts that you can do is write a song with somebody and tell the truth, like you say in Nashville, you know, three quarters of the truth. And then you're putting yourself out there. You're confronting your own deficiencies or the things that you might be good at. But mostly it's, I can't do this. These people have been doing it all their lives. What makes me think that I can do it now? And it's just sheer will. And by the grace of the people that I was able to write with that I kept going. If I had met the wrong people, I probably would have stopped. <laughs> but I've been very, very lucky, and very blessed with the people that I've been doing that with. I think we all have a creative impulse in us. Everybody does. And you're either using it or not using it, or you're using it in ways that you don't even know are creative, but you're doing them. And what gives me enormous pleasure is having people explore those sides of themselves. So when I hear something like that, it actually makes me so happy because I would see people backstage at a concert signing CDs or whatever. And they'd be like, Oh, this is so cool that you're doing this now. And they always had a thing that they wished they had done and didn't do. And I, I always say, just do it. Just do it. What's to say that you can't do it. Where's the time clock? Where, where does it say, Oh yeah, your time passed. Nobody has that. It's we're limited kind of by our own beliefs about time, about what we can do, what we can't do. And it's all BS. You just got to do it. You told a story about when you first told your agency, I want to be in a musical and how you were sort of met with maybe surprise or shock. And I think in this industry, no, I think often they, they were thinking this lady's crazy. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh. obviously you proved them wrong very quickly. You got the offer to be in Chicago on Broadway and answered the call. But you talk about the people that you're surrounded by and everyone needs to watch this TED talk that you gave in Nashville. It was very inspiring. But you say sometimes the universe conspires for you and pushes you. Sing my songs and light up the sparklers. Tell my stories and drink 
But I think in this industry, we're sort of forced to make ourselves easily understood or put yourself in this category or else you're being difficult. And that dissuades a lot of people from maybe going against type and what people have already understood us to be. So I would argue that it makes you more vulnerable in trying to find the songwriter within yourself when you've been telling stories your whole life. But now this is in a format that's like, oh, this is just me and a guitar. And it's a whole new exercise in vulnerability. It's very hard. I mean, we've all heard the stories over the years of somebody who was told no by a million people. And then, you know, they became the biggest star out there, you know, in music or film or whatever. Those are the things that test you and say, are you sure you want to be doing this? Are you sure? It's like a test of your passion and a test of your commitment to something. I've also felt like as I've gotten older that the thing that we run away from, which is that sort of openness and that vulnerability is the thing that I want from other people. So I guess I'm going to have to give it to <laughs> you can't can't be like a one sided thing. And I'm always so blown away when people are just honest and authentic. And those are the times in those conversations where I go back and I'm driving in a car after having dinner with somebody and I'm like, wow, they said that amazing thing that really has moved me and has allowed me to reflect. I mean, I'm always blown away by that when people are that honest. And I think in order to be that honest and authentic, you have to be checking in with yourself routinely and asking yourself, like, what do I want? Even within my own music, like I started off in country and was thrown into the machine and I've had to reevaluate a lot of things. Like, did I even want to go about it that way in the first place? But I was green and kind of had a lot of powerful people around me. And it wasn't until recent years where it's seemingly such a simple question that you're provoking everybody with, but it's the only way we can present. And sometimes your answer is going to change or some different desires will emerge. And I'm just so happy that you did pursue that because this album is beautiful. Your voice is, it's silky. It's so, <laughs> it's dreamy. Thank you. That is so nice. I, I really appreciate that. Look, the other thing I want to say is, I don't know if you've ever heard the expression compare and despair. Like I heard you sing it at a live in the vineyard and I'm like, Oh my God, that voice is beyond. Then I heard you sing at the BMI awards in Nashville and again, crush it. And I think to myself, well, I can't sing like that. I sing this way. And I have to be able to remember that because I would love to be able to sing like you, you know? And a friend of mine said to me the other day, he said, can't compare to anything. That's like a rose saying, oh, I wish I didn't have so much color. I wish I was white. And then a, a white tulip saying, oh, I love that, you know, you have this beautiful red color and, and these gorgeous little spiky thorns that keeps people away. I wish I had those. I just wilt and go this way. But that's the beauty of what, 
music is and what art is, is that we are all so different and we all have something to contribute in a way. That's so kind of you to say. And compare and despair is rearing its ugly head in my life all the time. And then I have to have that little pep talk that you just gave with myself (laughs) often, because that's what makes this such an exciting time to be in Nashville because of the influx of variety that we're seeing. And also just, you know, the way that social media has totally skewed the perception of everything going on. And it's a highlight reel. I think that's contributing to the compare and despair thing. And also like women are often put in positions of, I got to look this way. I've got to say this thing. I've got to be this person. And then the messages that we get, let's say in media or social media even, are like, you know, stay in your lane. This is what works. Do this. And it can be very halting and confusing in some ways. And I have to say, I'm learning so much from this younger generation because the women in that generation are doing their own thing and they don't really care what anybody is saying. And they're empowered because they've grown up with people who they've been watching, they've been looking, they've been learning, and they're very savvy about that. So I look at young women nowadays, I'm like, boy, they have a really strong sense of themselves in many situations. I'm talking about people in our business, you know, they're just, they're who they are. I didn't have that. I think that what you're talking about might be one positive side effect of the fact that there's so much inequity in the music industry for so many years towards women that they just kind of are like, well, screw it. I only have the option to do it my way. And it's yielded a lot of really powerful voices and unique sounds. And it's cool to see that, you know, we're anti-fragile. And in the face of like that resistance, I think it just made for a stronger showing from the female voices. And if you're talking about country music and you think about how country music was dominated by women for so long, oh, yeah. and we had Loretta, may she rest in peace, and we have Reba, Faith Hill, Shania, Dolly, Winona, Naomi, the chicks, Tammy Wynette. I mean, Tammy Wynette was writing about divorce. Loretta Lynn was singing about the pill. I mean, that's revolutionary. I I almost feel like you couldn't even do that now. Right. (laughs) It was so hip and so out of its time. And somewhere along the way, that voice has been sort of muted or whatever. And the narrative can be very much skewed towards just staying in your lane or something. And yet we see politically, as we begin to and I'm not really a political person, but as we see women begin to lose their rights, I also feel that we're seeing in many cases women losing their voices in a sense because the consequences can be so devastating. On the flip side of that, you have young women rising up, you have black women rising up, you have people saying, nope, we're not accepting the status quo. And I've earned this. And that's where I'm, you know, I'm on that train right now. (laughs) Yeah, a little piss and vinegar never hurt anybody. And (laughs) we've all collectively been through so much the last couple of years. And I mean, your support of other female artists, I just see it. It's so visible. I see you commenting on everyone's 
Instagram posts and it seems really authentic and it's nice to see that camaraderie coming from someone like yourself. But I think it's also the season for that right now. We need to let each other know that we're here for one another because absolutely there are things happening that are slowly eroding our power and our faculties to be able to stand for what we see as just or unjust. I believe I read, tell me if I'm correct, that a lot of these vocals that you captured with your duet partners were done remotely? Some were, yes. I'm going to tell you something that literally was a game changer. It was in year two of the pandemic when Matt Rawlings, my co-producer, and I were like, let's do this album, let's do it, duets, you know? And we kind of thought maybe the timing would be good because people were still not back on tour. And so maybe we could catch some people and they'd be willing to participate. And the idea of the album really came out of, I love the 70s. I love the music from the 70s. I started thinking about, wow, the 70s, they're almost 50 years old. They're not almost, they're 50 years old. And yet people still cover them. People still sing them. Young people know those songs. And I was making a connection in my head about why that was. And the 70s are really like the emergence of the singer-songwriter, people writing about their own personal experience. And when I thought of like the Great American Songbook, I thought, you know, many of those songs from that era and from that songbook were written for the Broadway musical. And many of those writers were writing songs that were written from a character's point of view from their own personal experience. And I kind of went, oh, there's a little bridge there. Maybe that's why the songs endure. Because I was like, there's something just beautiful about, it's almost like I look at it as you're going into somebody's mind. You know how when you watch a movie and the movie stops and the character comes forward and they're just talking and all the action is kind of frozen or muted behind that, but the one character is talking? That's how I feel about songs like this. They're just like these bursts of honesty that come from this personal point of view. So when we started looking at, okay, how are we going to do this? First, Matt and I just started throwing all our favorite, favorite songs into the bag. And it has to be over 100. I just feel like we just kept throwing songs in there. I love this. I love that. You know, But at the same time, when we started looking at the songs as, okay, what's going to work as duets, then we could eliminate songs based on, ah, that doesn't really work as a duet. Oh, that's going to be a a hard one for a guy to sing. That's going to be a hard one for me to sing. And we started narrowing it down and it really was hard. And what we did was when we went to each duet partner, we'd say, okay, here are like three to five songs. Is there anything here that you're responding to? And most of the time, people would say, oh my gosh, I love this one. And I'd be, that's the one I'd want to sing with you. So it was a very relatively connected process because people knew exactly which ones they felt good about singing. Like Willie Nelson's case, I knew on that song, particularly Slip Sliding Away, that he had covered Paul Simon's songs and that they were friends. And I thought, 
he must be comfortable in that world. And I thought this could be an amazing duet if you look at it from a man and a woman talking to each other. And I always kind of imagined it as a couple that has been together for a long time and she's talking about him, he's talking about her, they talk about things they have in common. And Willie singing that to me has been, it's revelatory when he sings we work our jobs, collect our pay, you know, like, ah. Oh. And when he says, the nearer your destination, the more you're subsliding away. And yet at 89 years old, I don't think Willie's going anywhere. I <laughs> think he's, he's aging backwards. The fact that so many of these songs weren't originally presented to us as a duet and then you were able to kind of find a way to rearrange it, like it made me look at that song with fresh eyes or fresh ears rather. And it's so cool that these are conversations and it must have been very nourishing to have such a source of connection during a time where we were not together and you're kind of reaching out to all these amazing artists and able to capture performances that make it feel like you're not only in the same room, but just sitting around the same mic together. I love that you said that because I listen till this day to albums from beginning to end. I still do because I see an artist is making an album. They're telling a story and that story is going somewhere. And I want to be a part of what that story is. And on my album, Now and Forever Duets, I call it a breezy 35 minutes. <laughs> it's so breezy <laughs> you know? though. You can put it on and just, you know, don't worry. It's not going to take three hours for you to get through it. But I really thought of them as conversations about love. I mean, you know, Keith Urban singing Crazy Love, the Van Morrison song. I love that conversation that we're having in that. It's sexy, you know? And I was like, wow, Keith is really so sexy here. She give me love, 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 crazy love. She give me love, 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 crazy love. And then also... You know, Leslie Odom Jr., Massachusetts, that Bee Gees song, I had never heard that as a duet. And when Leslie Odom came in to sing it, it was just beautiful. And he said the most gorgeous thing, which was when he married his wife, their first dance was More Than a Woman, the Bee Gees song. So he was immediately connected to Massachusetts, which was so cool. People couldn't be in the room. People like Jackson Brown, Leslie Odom Jr., we were all recording in the studio. 
other people we got remotely and there's this technology that enables you to be in the session real time no delays no lags and it's called audio movers for any musicians out there i think it was just genius so you have a zoom on one you get to see your partner and then the other one is the audio which sounds so great when we were recording it and tracking the album it felt very intimate it felt very spiritual almost because these songs in some way i think everybody wanted to do them honor you know and i felt that the musicians coming in and the singers coming in were extremely sensitive to that or feeling that matt and i would get chills like oh my gosh you know just because a certain guitar riff was played or a bass or drum or the way somebody sang something and it was very special it was not casual it felt very like intentional Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Rita Wilson, who was so vibrant and fun. I, it was a delight speaking with her. But I'm out on a little walk this beautiful fall afternoon, and I thought I would indulge you in story time about how Rita and I met several years ago at this great event called Live in the Vineyard in Napa Valley. This was at my favorite place in the world called Ragushi Vineyards. And at this event, I'm sitting on the floor with all these other women in music. Most of them are music supervisors, so responsible for placing music and film and TV. And on the stool in front of us is Rita Wilson, whom we all are familiar with. We've led her into our lives in various ways and seen her on our movie screens. But then suddenly she begins playing these really beautiful, connecting, original songs, and she's very charismatic as we all know so she's prefacing all these songs with these really entertaining and vulnerable stories that show us how authentic these pieces of music are to her especially in her emergence as a singer songwriter uh, something that she had wanted to pursue for a long time and i'm in real time figuring all of this out that rita wilson who i've known to be you know a wonderful actor is also an effective singer-songwriter. It's happening in real time. I'm seeing this uh, proven true. Then she shares a song with us called Throw Me a Party, which she reveals was written on the heels of her own breast cancer diagnosis. She wrote it with Christian Bush and Liz Rose, fantastic writers, but it's inviting her loved ones to celebrate her life once she's gone. And in that moment, I was just like, I don't care what kind of art form you're using to express yourself, the bravery that it takes to go to those experiences and write from it and then share it with strangers is really something to behold. And I think Rita is brave. She decided to pursue this, did not let time dictate or prevent her from doing so. And she's done it effectively. She's just put this beautiful album together that is another daring feat in of itself because she's attempting to recreate songs that are really precious to so many people. But like she was honoring the craft of songwriting with these first songs that she was sharing with us those years ago, 
she's also honoring the songwriting that was put into all these beautiful songs that she's covering on her latest project. And I mean, I think she's just someone who wants to connect and will do it in all the ways that Rita Wilson, I just said Wilson, Rita Wilson sees fit. So I think we should all venture to explore those other iterations of ourself, no matter how long you think you've waited to do so, because Rita's doing it and doing it and doing it well. My parents were so amazing, really incredible. I'm a first generation American. My mom was Greek and my dad was Bulgarian. But we always had music playing in the house and in the car. I remember my mom didn't even drive until I was about five. And then she took driving lessons. But when we were in the car and she'd be driving and I was young, maybe like 10 years old, 11, I don't know, something. She would be in the car and the radio would be playing and she would say in her Greek accent, ah, that song going to be a hit. And I'd be like, oh, God, mom, you don't know anything about music, you know? (laughs) And she'd be like, no. Two weeks later, number one, you know, she always nailed it. Where was Capitol Records? They should have hired her as an A&R. Exactly. I know. But the thing that she taught me in one day, we were in the car And that song by Bread, Everything I Own, came on. And she said, what do you think this song is about? And I said, oh, I think it's about a guy and a girl. They broke up and they're never going to see each other again. And she said... Maybe, but I think it's a song about somebody who died and you're never going to see them again. And I was like, wow, way to go, mom. I'm just trying to get my new shoes for school. Right. (laughs) Yes. You know, bring me down now. But it gave me insight into her interpretation of the song, who my mom was at that point to say, oh, yeah, she's got a different take on it. Why would she be thinking that about this song? And so that ability to look at something differently from a new perspective was, I think, something that my mom taught me. Yeah, I definitely have some core memories of having discussions with my parents at a young age about like, what do you think this song is about? And just feeling so much warmth that the conversation was even taking place. You know, just that invitation to speculate and to wonder and to think about, you know, how every person who hears a song can customize it to apply to their life. Like, what you're doing when you write a song is you're giving it away for other people to hopefully use it as medicine for their own experiences. And it's cool that your mom let you wonder and that there didn't have to be a right answer. It's very liberating. You're saying that thing about a storyteller too, which is like every song is a story. That's why, like I said before, I like to listen to an album from the beginning to the end because I want to know what the story is. 
And when I hear a song, I conjure up a story and the visuals for that and who are the people. And I'm imagining it. What a beautiful gift that is to be able to do and then have it all be coming to you and hitting you however it hits you emotionally or in your gut. I just love that. Do you feel a little more anxiety is not the word, but I'll use it when you're singing other people's songs, especially on live television. That might be one reason that I would want a teleprompter because I'm like, yeah, I don't want to screw up Paul Simon's song. Right. He's around and he'll catch it. (laughs) He'll hear about it. Right. Um, But is there like an emotional (laughs) difference? I remember once I was doing a cover of Please Come to Boston. And in the song, he sings, please come to Boston. And the girl's like, no, no, why don't you come back to Tennessee? Then he goes to Denver and then he goes to LA. And every time he goes, he's asking this woman who stayed in Tennessee to meet him. And one time I was doing it live and I went from Denver to LA and I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I have to turn the plane around. (laughs) We forgot Denver. (laughs) Just went back to Denver, sang that verse and came back. It happens. That's what a live show is. Also, you made it. LA is part of your life. So in a way you're still being authentic. You're just injecting some of your own experience in there. Right. It's so true. You talked about how Nashville was an encouraging environment for you to become a songwriter. How do you think the creative community of Nashville differs from the creative community of Los Angeles? What are just some initial thoughts about that? Well, I'd have to say that I have not had any of the experiences in LA that I've heard about that other songwriters have had with people not showing up and, you know, just flaking. But in Nashville, I will say that there is, first of all, the city itself reveres songwriters as it should. And it's a city built on music and a song. The craftsmanship alone based in Nashville, the people that have such facility, and I mean that in not that it's easy for them, but that they're so accomplished that it looks like it's easy. That facility, that discipline to come and write every day, like I rely on it. I know if I'm going to Nashville for a few weeks to write, that everybody's going to show up. Everybody's going to be there at the sessions. We're probably going to finish a song. And if we don't finish a song, we will finish the song on another session. And it's the approach that everyone has to their professionalism and to getting the work done without it feeling like we're really here just to talk and goof off. We do that. We have a blast, but we're here to work. And that kind of discipline combined with craftsmanship is unbelievable. Over the pandemic, I was writing 
with a lot of UK writers and a lot of Swedish writers. They were amazing too. I really think like I've just been very lucky with the people that I've worked with, but I have heard some horror stories of, you know, bad sessions and people not taking it so seriously, but thankfully I have, that hasn't happened yet. I see you're playing at Cafe Carlisle coming up, which is, it seems so perfect for this music, that aesthetic and environment I think will cater to how beautiful this music is and elegant. It's such a vibey, cool place to play. And in this time, this residency, I've invited Fraser Walters to sing with me. He's an incredible singer who was in the tenors. And he just left to sort of explore other creative avenues. He's been with them for so long that I'm just thrilled to have him. I cannot wait to do the duets with him. He's got such a gorgeous voice and beautiful interpretations. And yeah, he's wonderful. Can't wait. This is a residency, so people will have multiple opportunities to catch you in the show. You know, I think it really is so aptly titled calling it now and forever, which is from one of the lines in the duet that you did with my friend Jackson Brown. Don't take this heaven from one If you must cling to someone Now and forever Let it be me He is one of the most incredible songwriters. I have been in awe of him for since he came out, since he emerged as a songwriter. We just got done performing in the UK and London together, which was really fun. And, you know, we had done Let It Be Me before live. And so it was really so satisfying to be able to put it on a recording and have it is like okay this is it now it's not ephemeral it's here it's on let's call it vinyl yes <laughs> Well, and just picking that one lyric from that song too to embody the whole vibe of this project I thought was a really cool obvious Easter egg to people who've heard the project, but it just does imply that you're paying tribute to these songs in a timeless way. And Jackson's someone who can appreciate the art of a song too, but he's also paying tribute to the songwriter. I love that you weren't like, hey, let's do these days together. Like having him not do his own songs was probably hard to resist because you had these people and these iconic songs. Totally. I do know that people love to sing other people's songs, and they also have their own interpretations and ideas about songs that they grew up with or that they're affected by or that they admire or revere. And Jackson, you know, is known as the songwriter's songwriter. I mean, if you look when he was emerging, the Eagles were looking at him like, how does he do it? How does he do it? I mean, everybody was trying to like get his songs and put together a song and construct it in the way that he did. And it still does to this day. So yeah, whenever we're together, I try to ask him questions about 
his process and how he works. And, you know, it's very interesting. He takes, he really takes his time and he can have a song for a while that he's working on. It doesn't happen overnight. And that's what's so fascinating is that everybody's got their own process and nothing is right or wrong. It's just yours. And that's liberating to me. I think we're always like thinking we should be doing something a certain way, but that is limiting. And the key is really to find your own process, like what works for you. Sometimes when I'm writing a song, and it'll be interesting to hear how you do it. Let's say I don't have a session planned, but I have an idea in my head, right? Sometimes I'll write that whole idea out in a stream of consciousness sort of way. And I don't stop and I don't judge it. And I don't go back and read about it. I just write, 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 write till there's nothing more to say in that journal. Then I go back and I will start circling themes or words or ideas or images that could be cool in a song, you know? So then I have like this little kind of garden of flowers that start blooming and popping up. Then I take all of that and try to form it into a structure of some sort. Some people can be daunted by the fact that there's no template, but I think if you just lean into you know, how wild the process can be. I love that you said garden because you do kind of like you deadhead this rose bush a little bit and then you have to figure out where do you want to put the herbs and like it's something that should be nurtured and cultivated. And no, I don't like fault people for being so off my wavelength when they ask things like, hey, is it music or lyrics first? Because you're like, Every song has a different point of origin, but if you just allow yourself to accept that, then I think it's it's exciting and you never know where your next song will arrive, which makes it that easy and that hard. Exactly. Exactly. Oh no, it's fascinating. I was writing in Nashville with Emily Shackleton. She's an amazing writer and has written so much stuff for Carly Pierce and we were writing this song and it's called New Girl. And it was based on a true story that happened to a girlfriend of mine. She found out that her husband was having an affair on her because she received a text that the husband thought he was sending to his girlfriend, but it went to his wife. And my friend handled it very gracefully. Of course, they're not married anymore, but she handled it really beautifully. And it's that period of reflection, like you take that story, but now I'm driving home or I'm lying in bed or I'm on a walk and it starts coming to me like, wow, she was so amazing. Like what would happen if she ever ran into that woman? So that was the genesis of the song. She sees somebody, she's like, I know who you are. And she goes up to her and she starts a conversation. So we were writing this song and it was really about the wife telling her, like, look, I have nothing against you, but just understand he's done this before and you're just the new girl, the same old story, right? So Emily and I were talking and we had gotten to the bridge. And I'm like, what, what's your take on a bridge? Like, I mean, I know what everybody says, but, you know, I've heard that it's a change in the music. I heard that it's a new melody to kind of 
keep you interested in the song. I've heard that it's something that you want to be saying that you haven't said yet. And she said the best thing. She said, oh, I like to think of the bridge as the drop the mic moment. And I was like, yes! And then immediately the bridge wrote itself. Because when she said that, it was like, all right. So the, then now the woman in the song says on the bridge, oh, he called me last night. That you didn't know that. But don't worry about me. I'm not going back. <laughs> like, I'm done with him. I'm out. He called me last night. But you didn't know that. But don't worry about me. I'm not going back. It was so powerful and so effective because you kind of basically say, what is your, like in French, they would call it l'esprit d'escalier. You remember in the old movies when somebody would say something really cutting and then like turn and leave the room yeah. and they would turn back and they would say, and that's my last one. Boom, and leave. It was like that. They used to have drop the mic moments like that in movies. So she has the drop the mic moment in the song. I was like, oh, Emily, that's so good. And is there a better feeling than knowing that you nailed it as you're writing a song? I mean, it's exhilarating. <laughs> it's exhilarating. And I'm not saying some songs end up really being wonderful and I don't know it in the moment. But there are those moments where you're just like, oh, this is the most present and in the moment I could possibly be right now is when you're creating something, when you're writing something. When you don't know that you've written something really good until later, I think those realizations come to you or those reflections come to you when you're in quiet mode and you allow all of that to be processed in a way. When you're working and you're working, you're kind of putting all of that energy forward. And it's when you sort of have that moment that you can go, ah. I listened to this really great interview. It was on BBC Radio called Headliner. And the host, Niall, such a good conversation between you guys. I loved it. But he said one thing that I was not entirely in agreement with and how he phrased the question. He's like, why did you deprive yourself of music for so long? And... I know what he was meaning. Like, we would have loved for you to enjoy or relish in your joy of music sooner, but I think it's so triumphant that you made the discovery at all. I really think music is the thing that I was most attracted to, even as a kid, because I would get up and sing Ode to Billy Joe at like 11 or 12 years old. Like, <laughs> anybody want to hear it? I got it, <laughs> you know, like this little kid. But again, fascinated by that story. Like Bobby Gentry, first of all, was gorgeous. She was playing the guitar. She was throwing something. Somebody was throwing something off the Tallahatchie Bridge. Just that word, Tallahatchie. I had never heard that before. And it was so mesmerizing. But I was so attracted to music. But I started acting at a very young age. And back then, people didn't really do both. It was almost looked down upon. If you were an actor and then tried to be a singer, oh, come on, you must be joking. 
unless you were from Broadway and you did that anyways. You were a singer and a dancer or a singer and an actor. But it was not embraced. So I, because acting took off and I started doing that, it became my job. But it really, the thing that held me back was I just did not know how to do it. How does someone get a band? I had no idea. Everybody I knew played an instrument or that I admired played an instrument, wrote their own stuff. Okay, well, I don't play any instruments and I'm never going to be as good as those people. So how do you do it? How do you get a band? Like now kids are so lucky. They have YouTube and they have TikTok and they have GarageBand. So there wasn't that avenue yet. People were doing it and making it happen. I just didn't know how. And then the acting thing took off and it was my job and I, I loved it. But I certainly, you know, you can't say you wish you started something earlier because things happen when they're supposed to happen. And I did ask Bruce Springsteen this question once about songwriting because he was talking about writing songs and his process. And I said, all right, well, what makes me think that I can start writing songs now and you've been writing them all your life? And he said, because reads, creativity is time independent. And that to me is such a beautiful thing. It's like Socrates. It's like, oh, yes, of course. My tribal elder has come to tell me this. That was so liberating to know. And I say this to anybody listening to this podcast. There is no time frame. If you want to do it and you know what it is you want to do, take those steps to make it happen. And that doesn't mean that you have to become a rock star. It just means do the thing that gives you joy. It always comes down to that. What is the thing that gives you joy? And who's to say that now is not your time? I love it. It's an emotional thing to hear. I think we let time dictate way too much about our creative careers, about our family life. I mean, especially as women. And I think that's a really wonderful message to put out there. And you walk through life exemplifying that. I like to just ask all my guests what they see as the best part about being a woman in the industry, because we so often talk about the downside of it. I think there's lots of advantages, but what do you perceive those to be? I think there's an incredible community out there that exists of women in our business, whether they're songwriters, producers, engineers. I seek them out. There are extraordinary women doing things in tech in the music industry. I read credits. I still go into an album. I read credits. If it's something that can be found on Wikipedia, I'll go there. I'll find those credits. And I look for that. But there are women at labels in charge of studios in vocal producers, female producers like I worked with this one amazing female producer, Jen DeSilvio. I don't know if you know her. I heard Beth Ditto's album. This was a few years ago. And I'm like, oh my God, who produced this album? This album's amazing. And I like try to dig around, dig around. And I put together that it was this woman, Jen DeSilvio. And I literally got a number somehow and cold called her and like 
I would like to meet with you. You are maybe the only female producer I know. And from that, we became friends. And then she's produced a couple of things for me. She produced that song that Caitlin Smith and she and I wrote together called I Want to Kiss Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I think part of it is doing your own homework, but it's the community. I love seeking that amazing community of women out there. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rita Wilson. I certainly did. Do yourself a favor, check out her latest album, Now and Forever Duets. And give her a follow on all of her socials at Rita Wilson. And lucky you if you get to catch her during her residency at Cafe Carlisle in New York City, which ends on November 5th. I know that she's killing it. I wish I could see it myself. Her other tour dates will be posted on her website at RitaWilson.com. And this feels like an appropriate time to tell you that I am also releasing a duet of my own that I did with my friend Devin Allman, who's the son of Greg Allman. He invited me to go out on the Allman Family Revival, which will take place this coming December. Go check out my website for all those dates listed. We're hitting some amazing theaters across the country that were made famous by the Allman Brothers. But we are paying tribute to the songwriter Jackson Brown as well. This is a song that he wrote while he was roommates with Devin's father, Greg, during their teenage years. And it's a song we all know and love that is probably considered one of the best songs ever written. It's These Days. And the reason that we wanted to do this is because it's very personal for Devin to cover a song that his father wrote himself, but his father did release this on his laid-back deluxe edition album in 1973. So this is us once again paying tribute to a great song and the people that make them and the people that make us want to make music. So I hope you enjoy that. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. It comes out in a little over a week and come see us out on the Almond Family Revival. We would love to see you and just celebrate some great American music. And we'll be introducing a few new songs in the set list as well. Thank you guys so much for listening to Salute the Songbird this week. And I'll see you in a couple weeks. Salute the Songbird is brought to you by Osiris Media, hosted by Maggie Rose, produced by Austin Marshall, Maggie Rose, and Kirsten Cluthy, with production assistance from Kip Baggett, edited by Justin Thomas at Revoice Media, music by Maggie Rose, graphics by Mark Dowd. Thanks so much for listening, and to close out the show, here's Rita Wilson's Fire, featuring Elvis Costello from her new album, Now and Forever, Duets. You turn on the radio 